Welcome back to another episode of The Doctor's Dilemma. I'm your host, Dr. Adil Mansour. This is the podcast where we discuss the challenges, the dilemmas that physicians overcome to have the opportunity to practice medicine. Hey guys, welcome back to The uh, Doctor's Dilemma. As always, I appreciate you guys listening to the podcast series. Today I have a very, very special guest that uh, I will be interviewing. I actually spent this week with him at his direct primary care clinic, which I'm sure he'll talk about more. And I've learned so much about what he's doing, what his plans are, and what he tends to do for the state of Oklahoma. Dr. Sarith is a fourth-generation Oklahoman from rural southeast Oklahoma. He's a graduate of Oklahoma Baptist University and completed his medical school and residency training at the University of Oklahoma School of Community Medicine and is specialized in internal medicine and pediatrics. Dr. Sudith also obtained a master's degree in public health and health administration and policy and has been very engaged in physician advocacy and drafting health policy. He has volunteered on multiple campaigns and held various leadership positions, including serving on the board of trustees of the Oklahoma State Medical Association. He also serves as volunteer faculty at the OU School of Community Medicine, where he enjoys mentoring medical students and physician assistant students. Dr. Sudith is a physician entrepreneur who joined Dr. Scott Street in launching their own direct primary care practice in Tulsa, Oklahoma in September 2018. He's an avid supporter of free market medicine and the direct primary care movement. Dr. Sudith is married to Becca, and they have four boys, two horses, 30 chickens, and four dogs, and reside in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. Yes, he does have 30 chickens. I have visited him this week, and I've met his uh, four beautiful boys and had dinner with them, and it was a blast spending some time with him. He didn't mention he does own a 16-acre land where his house is built. But nevertheless, I'd like to introduce Dr. Sudith. Thank you, Adil. It's my pleasure to host you this week. The Department Care Movement is a very special and powerful movement involving physicians of all ages, of all backgrounds. It's a very diverse group of folks who have all recognized the, the same uh, conclusion, and that is our current healthcare system is broken, it's dangerous, it is destructive. And given the fact that physicians in general commit suicide at twice the rate of the general population just attests at this stark reality that our healthcare system is literally killing physicians. It is time to take back healthcare for physicians to assume their rightful place as head of the healthcare table and to restore the patient-physician relationship. We've been very uh, fortunate to develop relationships and even be mentored by several members of the DPC movement. You know, some notable names include, first and foremost, Dr. Josh Humber in uh, Wichita, Dr. Davenport, uh, Jeff Davenport in Edmond, Oklahoma, uh, Kyle Rickner with Primary Health Partners in uh, Yukon and Oklahoma City area, um, as well as physicians around the country, Dr. Vance Lassie and uh, Dr. Chad Savage and Dr. Phil Eskew, the list goes on and on. Just so many wonderful people who are at the forefront of leading this movement. And Dr. Scott Street, my partner, and I are very excited to continue the, these efforts right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to be able to support you in your efforts of returning to New Jersey and along with your wife, launching your own direct primary care practice there. Those are some powerful words. Dr. Sadev, before we delve into the details of what you have just mentioned, I would like to get to know more about your background. So tell us, 
why did you choose to become a physician? That's always a fun question for me to answer. And, you know, it's as a volunteer faculty physician, that's a, a question I always go over with pre-med students who are interested in becoming physicians and applying to medical school. That in and of itself can be quite a stressful process. For me personally, I did not grow up in affluence and I did not grow up in a home with higher education. In fact, I'm the first in my family with a college degree. And so with that being said, I didn't have much exposure to physicians or or members of the medical community growing up. When I entered college, I actually was a pastoral ministry major Hmm. uh, at Oklahoma Baptist University. You know, looking back at that and even now, some of the main reasons for even pursuing uh, that particular uh, occupation in, in medicine is my interest in spending time with patients. I love spending time with patients, with adults and with kiddos, and that's also why I'm medpeds. But in addition to that, I'm, a, I'm very extroverted. I have no problem talking to the wall. And so talking to any person is uh, something I, I really enjoy. And, and at the end of the day, that's what energizes me. But even more so, I enjoy interacting with people in the hard times when things aren't going right, times when they are suffering physically as well as emotionally and mentally, and being able to encourage those individuals, speak words of blessing over them and to them, and at the end of that conversation for them to, to go away feeling encouraged and feeling the difference of the interaction that we've had together. Those are absolutely attributes of a good physician. But there are some other aspects that I recognize. One, I honestly enjoy being in positions of leadership. I've been in positions of leadership from high school to college and medical school. And even now, I continue to hold various positions of leadership. Furthermore, some more practical aspects of myself. One, I really enjoy math. That's always been a strong suit, certainly my forte in, in school. And, and there's a fair amount of math that goes into becoming a physician and being a physician, as well as just science in, in general and specifically in anatomy and physiology. I mean, those particular subject matters combined with the desire to serve in leadership positions and enjoying that, and then my interactions with people and really being a people person, all of that together is what made me realize that, you know what, being a physician is the path for me. Wow, that's amazing. So it looks like this was a personal choice that you made. From what you're describing, to me, it seems like you could have gone into anything. Was being a physician your dream job? Well, it became my dream job, at least as I thought until I was deep into residency training at least until I experienced many of the negative aspects of the American healthcare system. I see. So tell us about your journey into medical school. Tell us the dilemmas that you had to come across, especially being the first one in your family growing up in a rural place. If I recall correctly, you had 54 people in your graduating high school class. Tell us the, the dilemmas, the obstacles that you had to overcome to get into medical school? Sure. So you're right. I only had 54 students in my graduating class in high school. And so automatically there's a little bit of an adjustment that has to be made going from such a small environment, from a small town of just about a few hundred or a thousand people to the larger environment of a university. Um, And even more so going to the larger environment of a university. In high school as well as in college, I performed at at a high level 
academically. And as many folks may know, to get into medical school, you have to be from that higher level performance. The challenge is once in medical school, now you're in a room of folks who are all the best at their respective schools. And that can all honestly feel a little overwhelming. In fact, many students once in medical school question if they even belong in medical school. The transition is certainly rigid. It's often said that medical school is like drinking from a fire hose. So much information that has to be absorbed in a relatively short period of time, and that takes a lot of grit. I have plenty of classmates who scored high on various standardized exams who struggled severely in medical school. I have many students who did not score so high on standardized exams, but are rock stars in medical school. And that is simply the aspect of going to medical school. You have to show grit. When you get knocked off the horse, you have to get back on the horse and keep going. Other aspects is, for me, I was married in college. Mm. And so I had a partner who supported me when I returned home from long, hard days of training and studying. She was there. And I could rely on her. She was a, a huge encouragement. And then I also had a social community, friends that I regularly interacted with, friends outside of my training, outside of medical school. It's very important to nurture those relationships and not allow those relationships to, to fall to the side. The other thing is developing good time management. Of course, that's a challenge, again, going from a relative lower demand in university level and then going to medical school where there's much higher demand of your uh, academic time. But you know, one simple thing, you, can, you can't wait till the week before exams to study. You're having to study pretty much every day in medical school in order to stay on pace for doing well, for absorbing the material and understanding the material. So it seems like the challenges of getting into medical school and staying in medical school were not something simple. It sounds like there's a lot of things you had to overcome. Sure. There's a lot of things to overcome. And simply put, there's a lot of things that a college student has to do to maximize their chances of getting into medical school. Number one, you have to have a good GPA, especially in science. Number two, you have to have a good MCAT score. Sometimes that means taking the MCAT exam more than once. Number three, you have to have some sort of experience in healthcare that tells the admissions committee that you have experienced healthcare sufficiently to justify or to demonstrate that your desire to pursue medicine is truly valid. And then fourthly, you also have to experience a heart of understanding, which is often referred to as somebody who appreciates diversity or as a person of diversity. And the last thing I would mention is the actual interview for medical school. Uh, there's a, a whole conversation that can be had just on how to prepare for that interview and how to perform well in that interview. And I'll mention a few things. But first, with regards to diversity, in my personal experience, I spent over a year volunteering at a health clinic serving underserved and indigent when I was an undergraduate student. This provided significant opportunity to see a myriad of cases, to see folks who struggled to access care, who could not afford care, but through the generosity of so many people and organizations, they were able to have their health care needs met. That was a very educational experience for me, and I really appreciate that. I also worked at a hospital as a unit clerk mm -hmm. in the urgent care. 
Additionally, I worked as a switchboard operator at the hospital. It's amazing just how much healthcare can be experienced by connecting phone calls from a one physician to another physician or you know, one service to another. I learned a lot through my experience working in the hospital. That also provided me with different perspectives of the healthcare system at, at such an early point in my medical journey and further affirmed my desire to pursue medicine. And one thing I would mention about diversity, I also spent um, significant time abroad. I spent a whole summer teaching conversational English at a private university in Cambodia. And then I also spent another intermediate term of college doing ethnographic research in India, in the states of West Bengal and Arisa. Those were transformative experiences. Being in other cultures, in other systems of government, in other societies and other healthcare systems, seeing how folks live their lives there, seeing some of the stark contrasts between those populations of people and populations of people where I live and where I'm from, that opened my eyes to many things. In many cases, it showed just how wonderful the United States of America is and how wonderful my home state of Oklahoma is. But it also highlighted some of the things that we've done wrong in our country especially as it pertains to the healthcare system, the way that we deliver care to patients. And those lessons are ones that I continuously think about, think back on, and inform the way that I deliver care even to this day. I think your challenges, the dilemmas that you had to face to overcome, to set yourself up, to get into medical school, to succeed through medical school, that may seem insurmountable. But in actuality, for you, they weren't. You found the specific things you needed to target. You came up with a plan. It sounds like you overcame them. So tell us, you could have gone into any specialty you had chosen, whether it be surgery, whether it be neurosurgery, whether it be orthopedic surgery, and the list goes on. Why did you choose internal medicine and pediatrics? Why choose MedPeds? Again, you're on a roll here of asking some really good questions. Choosing specialties is kind of like choosing uh, which shoes you're going to buy or you know which clothes you're going to buy. Mm-hmm. It's much about personal preference. For me, again, I like spending time with people. So I'm not going to be a surgeon where the majority of my time, not all of my time, but the majority of my time would have been performing various procedures in an operating room with the patient asleep. Same is true for many other specialties with radiology, you know, I'm sitting in front of a computer looking at various images and providing interpretations of those anesthesiology. I'm putting patients to sleep and I'm waking them back up. I have many friends in those specialties, dear friends. They love that. That fits their personality and their preferences. But for me, I am energized and I'm most satisfied when I spent an hour or two hours or six hours with my patients in my medical practice. That is what is rewarding that's why I wake up and go to work every day, and it's my joy to deliver that level of care and to, con- to continue to expand and scale that level of care. It's also why I have so much hope about healthcare in America, because it's the direct primary care movement that allows for that level of care to even be delivered. But MedPed specifically, I, I really enjoyed working with adults. That was earlier in my third year of medical school, and then... I was intentional about not choosing 
which specialty to pursue until completing all of my clerkships. And it just so happened that my very last clerkship in third year of medical school was pediatrics. That was a wonderful experience. I really enjoyed working with the kiddos then. I had my first child in third year of medical school. And since then, as you mentioned in the opening, I do have four children. So, you know, I spend time with kiddos every day, whether it's at home or in the office, you know, at work. I love spending time with children. And as a person with a public health background, I also recognize that it's earlier in life when there's a greater chance of being able to intervene and prevent many of the diseases and ailments that afflict so many folks in America. That's awesome. And actually very inspiring. You know, tell us when it came to your training, can you think of any dilemmas, any obstacles that stuck to your mind that you had to overcome? Absolutely. Right now in the United States and other countries, not just the United States, there is this focus on physician and fellow burnout. And we hear that term thrown around quite a bit. Usually when when I think of burnout, I think when most people think of burnout, there's a connotation that there is something wrong with that individual. There's something intrinsically wrong. There's a shortcoming. That person is, is weak. A better term, I believe, is demoralization. Demoralization is a result of being in a situation where you're trying your best to employ your skills, to do your job, but because of a variety of external factors, you're not able to deliver the care or to do your job the way that you want to, even according to the own standard that you set for yourself. And that leads to demoralization because over time, especially in the American healthcare system, as early as in residency training, one quickly sees that there are these many hurdles and hoops you have to jump through and forces that work against delivering good care to patients, care that most went to medical school with the intent of delivering. Is it correct for me to assume that during your training, is that something that you might have experienced? If so, how did you overcome it? Unfortunately, we're taught that we only have 10, 15 minutes to spend with patients in the exam room. And so that means cutting conversation short. That means telling a patient that we can't talk about those additional issues that they want to talk about and that instead we have to schedule another appointment to talk about issues, you know, four through six. It means having to document fast or take documentation home and not finish documentation during the day. It means looking for new ways to be efficient in care delivery which some of that is needed as a new physician, but a lot of that is artificial. There are so many artificial constraints placed on physicians, and that is especially true in residency. Demoralization was certainly something I experienced in residency training, and I would go so far as to say that the vast majority of those in residency training also experience some element of demoralization. Mm-hmm. Again, demoralization is a result of having to navigate a very complex and convoluted healthcare system that makes it difficult to deliver good care to patients. It's those various rules and regulations promulgated by federal or state government or policies that have been promulgated by 
private insurers that dictate much of how care is delivered by physicians, how care is accessed and experienced, and where it's accessed by patients. And it's that artificial system that prevents physicians from delivering the care that that they desire to deliver. Again, that's the care that, that they intended on delivering when they went into medical school. So unfortunately for myself, I had to learn how to just suck it up, keep working, nose down to the grindstone, get the job done, and move on. Any alternative did not seem to be in sight. It's just the way it is, the way it's going to be, and we have to deal with it. Fortunately, after residency training, I learned about a new way, and that is with direct primary care. My now partner and I were working together in a different setting, and I had asked him a very simple question, and that is, if there's one thing you could do to reform healthcare in Oklahoma, what is it? When I asked this question, I did not know that he had actually trained with Dr. Josh Umber, who I previously mentioned is a, a leading voice in the DPC movement based out of Wichita, Kansas. But sure enough, uh, my partner, Dr. Street, put me in contact with Dr. Umber, and that began a tremendous transformation in my life, in my career. And after talking with Dr. Umber for the whole hour-long drive from where I was working then to my home, I knew that direct primary care was for me. It is and has been what I was missing. And after talking with my partner about that, decided that this is what we needed to do together. I know that many of the listeners who may not be aware of direct primary care would love to know how did direct primary care eliminate the demoralization that you had experienced? As I mentioned, the government and private payers, all forms of third party, third parties have decimated the healthcare delivery system in the United States. In direct primary care, it's simple. It is a relationship between a patient and a physician and nobody else. The patient pays one flat monthly membership fee, and then the physician takes care of the patient. It's that simple. It's a clear, clean, transparent transaction. There's no guessing game as to how much the care is going to cost. For the physician, there's no longer a concern about checking off certain boxes in order to get reimbursed by the government or other private entities. It is being liberated. It is being free to provide that care that you've always wanted to provide to patients. So tell me this, you know, it sounds that you have learned of a way to provide primary care to your patients, and hence how you and your partner have co-founded Remedy Health Direct Primary Care in Tulsa, Oklahoma. When it comes to primary care, everyone needs labs. Everyone needs medications. They need imaging. And from all we know, or what we don't know, we have no clue how much this stuff costs. So what solutions have you come up with? Our patients at Remedy Health, they pay a flat monthly membership fee to be in our practice. And they can see us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We have office hours. We make house calls. They have our phone number. They can text us anytime they need us. But sometimes a medication might be needed. So like many other direct primary care physicians around the country, we have decided to have our own pharmacy on site. And like most states in the country, Oklahoma permits physicians to dispense those medications. And we recognize there are some other states that don't, like Texas, unfortunately, and I believe even New Jersey has some limitations, and and you've experienced that. 
We offer medications at a fraction of the price. A Z-Pack, for example, is only a couple of bucks. Our blood pressure medication for a dollar. That's incredible. In fact, my own father, who lives in a different city, pays a $10 copay for his lisinopril. When our patients here pay a dollar or less, and that's the cash price. Wow, so you're saying that you can provide a month's supply of lisinopril for less than a dollar? Absolutely. And that is the case for several medications in our pharmacy. Wow. What about lab work? Say you want to get a CBC, you know, the blood count for mm -hmm. my patient and check what their liver is doing. Mm -hmm. How much is that stuff? You know, labs right now cost about the amount of going on a nice vacation. What we've done is reduce that to the cost of going out to a, a modest restaurant. Mm. So our patients for a CBC pay $2.20. Wow. If they need their cholesterol checked, we can do whole lipid panel and our patient pays $2.75. Or if we need to screen for diabetes, a hemoglobin A1C is just a little over $3. Wow. We can do an entire standard panel for about 20 bucks. So you're saying that physicians who are part of the direct primary care movement have eliminated third-party pairs and figured out how to get the labs, the medications, for essentially extremely cheap, is that correct? Absolutely. Oh, explain the MRI. You know, the MRIs, I, you know, we're told it's $4,000 per MRI. Some go as high as 8,000 CAT scans, x-rays. What about those things? How do you provide that to your patients? You know, there are a lot of imaging companies around. And in Tulsa, we have several. And it's as simple as going to one company and asking them how much they would provide that imaging service for, whether it's MRI, CT scan, or x-ray. And then once we have those prices, then we employ a very simple free market principle, and that is going to another competitor of the imaging company and negotiating a cheaper price. And after doing that for a while and going back and forth, we arrive at prices like, at least around here, a CT scan for $250 or an MRI for $350, as opposed to, as you said, three or $4,000. That's much more affordable and it's much more reasonable. What about an x-ray, the most common test I may need to do as a family med doc? What have you negotiated? Sure. X-rays, $40, $60, $70. It depends. But that's obviously much cheaper than the hundreds or $1,000 that most people pay for an x-ray. Wow. So you're telling me and you're telling all the other physicians who are listening to this that I have the ability to go directly to these lab companies, these companies that make medications directly and negotiate pricing? That's not what I was taught in med school. That's not what I was taught in residency. I'm told that's not doable. You're telling me that's doable? It's amazing, right? In a true free market medical system, then all the parties are free to negotiate price. And that is absolutely true in direct primary care. That's actually one of the great values that PPC docs provide to their patients. We have negotiated and prices, in fact, even on specialist services. One of my dear friends, Dr. Laura Lee Roboto, is an OBGYN, and as a physician owner of her OBGYN practice, we've been able to negotiate a cash price of just $2,000 for all prenatal care, a vaginal delivery in the hospital, and all the postpartum care up wow. to six weeks following delivery. Wow. Here's a burning question that I have. What about, so your patient needs a procedure. I can tell you right now, uh, when I was in college, I had appendicitis. I still remember the bill I got. 
it was to this day total two hundred and five thousand dollars how do you negotiate prices for all these insanely expensive surgical procedures sure so first of all for those who don't have insurance calling the billing office and negotiating a cheaper price is a method that is sure to succeed and second of all working out a payment plan to reduce the monthly amount that the patient has to pay to as little as possible but generally we do recommend some form of what's called wraparound insurance for our patients mm -hmm. to take the auto industry as an example when you drive your vehicle to a gas station to fill your gas tank with gas, you do not pull out your auto insurance card to pay for that, nor do you use your auto insurance to pay for oil changes or new tires or new windshield wiper blades. Those are routine and expected expenses that come with owning a vehicle. But if there's an accident, if there's a, a larger catastrophic event that takes place, that is what insurance is intended for. That is when insurance kicks in and takes care of that to protect you from significant financial loss. Yeah. But following that example, imagine if you did have to use auto insurance for gasoline. That means that $3 a gallon of gas would become $300 after the money passed through the hands of coders and builders and compliance officers through all these third-party entities. When all of that is removed, then the price of the product being provided is much more reasonable and it's much more affordable. Wow, so you're definitely advising your patients that they should have some sort of insurance and there are ways to make sure you have that coverage. What about your patients that can't afford it? Is there or are there places that you've negotiated prices for surgeries like say my appendix and I need that removed or my gallbladder I need that removed? Is there a place I can go to in this country that I can pay cash for. Absolutely. And I have to give a shout out here to Dr. Keith Smith at Surgery Center of Oklahoma. You know, what Dr. Smith has done uh, with his colleagues is truly amazing. You can go to their website and from a drop down, select just about any surgery you can imagine and see exactly how much that's going to cost. And that's how much you pay. And you pay cash for that. Wow. And that can be an upfront expense. I do know that they offer a, a payment plan. It's really amazing. And it's become so popular that medical tourism is truly amazing. And it's become so popular and well-known that now they serve more patients from outside of Oklahoma than from within Oklahoma. Many of us have heard about medical tourism. That's when a patient may travel to another country take a week-long vacation, undergo a procedure, and then return, and the expense of all that be a fraction of what it would cost to undergo that in the United States. Well, with Surgery Center of Oklahoma, we are now seeing domestic medical tourism. That's good for Oklahoma, and that's good for the United States, let alone being good for patients. Wow, so you're saying that that surgery that I had wasn't really $205,000. It was much cheaper. It's not uncommon to see a procedure that in any other setting would cost eighty dollars to $100,000 cost $15,000 at Surgery Center of Oklahoma. Wow. Also, I can see how dark primary care has removed the demoralization that you may have experienced. It sounds like you now have the ability to provide true preventive care 
to your patients. What are the statistics that you have mentioned, if I recall correctly, about uh, 60% of all ER needs are primary care needs anyway? Is that correct? Sure. So, you know, there's some amazing statistics about the current healthcare system that are just turned upside down in the direct primary care model. So, first of all, it's well known that about 60% of primary care office visits are totally unnecessary. Mm. But think about that. If you are a clinic manager, if you're a physician with your own clinic, and the only way you get paid is by seeing patients in your clinic, that unfortunately leads to a perverse incentive. And not to say that physicians are bad actors, but it's just to say you get what you incentivize. And the fact of the matter is many, many issues can be dealt with over text message or over a phone call or maybe doing a quick video chat or FaceTime, maybe just over a simple email. But it does not necessitate an office visit. In the traditional model, there's a question, well, how am I going to get paid for that? Somehow I have to demonstrate a certain level of care that was delivered according to a long list of archaic rules and regulations just to get paid. In direct primary care, I don't have to worry about it. I'm not trying to check off any boxes. I'm just focused on doing what's right for my patient. Uh If that means doing part of the exam and a FaceTime call because they can't make it to the office for a longer new patient visit, and then later doing the physical exam, then that's what I do for my patients. Um, If it means the patient texting me a photo of that abnormal lesion on their arm or discharge from their eye, then sure. I mean, whatever makes sense, whatever is most convenient for the patient. And that is what defines patient-centered care. So tell us, depression. I think you have definitely, you know, referred to burnout, which I believe depression, burnout, demoralization, I believe they all are interconnected on one way or another. Nevertheless, depression is a very widespread phenomenon in the medical field. It's often tagged as a serious disorder and usually not attended to. What is your take on suicide that is caused by depression amongst medical professionals? And what advice do you have for them to handle the work-related stress, work-life balance, and hence their ability to overcome depression? At the end of the day, number one, what's most important is your family. We can all become so busy and so preoccupied even in our endeavors to grow the direct primary care movement, we can become so busy that we forget about our spouses, our significant others, our children. And when I'm on my deathbed, I'm not going to regret having worked less. I'm going to regret those days that I didn't get to take my kids to school. I'm going to regret the days that I wasn't able to make it to that soccer game or to that basketball game. I'm going to regret those times when I had to cancel the date with my wife and wasn't able to take her out and spend that special time with her because of other activities or obligations or commitments that I self-imposed. It is absolutely important to step back and reflect on what's most important. And that's something that I've had to do recently. And I will never regret spending more time with my family. So I think to answer that question... What's most important, first of all, is your family. But second of all, it's also stepping back and taking another look at the healthcare system in the United States and realizing that there is an option. You know, I 
love the Star Wars series, mm-hmm. you know, episodes one through eight, and this December we'll have episode nine come mm-hmm. out, and of course you had spinoffs too. I, just, I love this idea of resistance, of breaking free from the tyranny of the Empire, and that's exactly what we face in the healthcare system. The Empire is corporate healthcare and all of these third parties. The DPC movement is the resistance, and it is the DPC movement that is disrupting the way that healthcare is delivered for the sake of the lives of patients and of physicians. And to those who are struggling in their current medical work environment, I would encourage you to consider how can I make the transition to direct primary care? or if you're a specialist, direct care. There are so many specialists now that have employed this same model. It's not unique to primary care physicians. It's Mm -hmm. most common, but there are direct care dermatologists. There are direct care allergists and immunologists, Mm -hmm. your nose and throat, docs, the list goes on and on. And as we discussed earlier with Surgery Center of Oklahoma, there again, you have a direct care model where they don't deal with insurance companies at all. They don't deal with Medicare with Medicaid or any third-party payers, they deal directly with patients. Once you do that and you leave behind the shackles of this old and broken healthcare system, then you too can be liberated and experience the joy and the satisfaction of being a physician. That is some truly, truly inspiring words. I have a final question for you. It's kind of a personal one. Mm -hmm. What would you be if you didn't become a physician? Probably a professional basketball player. <laughs> you know, I tend to say it's something, you know, usually when I do ask this question, I usually get different responses and my response ends up being, you know what? It's something you still can do, but in your case, <laughs> I don't know if that's possible. <laughs> Thanks so much. I appreciate that. I appreciate your your honest assessment of my physique. <laughs> All I can say is Alan Iverson was also six foot tall and he did great (laughs) thank you so much uh for being on the episode i know i learned a lot and i hope those who are listening also uh learned a lot from this episode again i do hope you all i wish you all in your mission that uh, you have carried in the state of oklahoma and uh, i really hope in the future we get to talk again to see what you've been up to thank you adil it's been my absolute pleasure if you'd like to contact the show, please email me at doctorsdilemmapod at gmail.com. That is doctorsdilemmapod at gmail.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-S-D-I-L-E-M-M-A-P-O-D at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.